0: Public health is a population-based field of science focused on preventing disease and promoting health. Every week, we will be engaging in interactive discussions and analyses of the latest public health issues affecting you and your communities all around the world. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast.
1: My name is Linda, and I'm here with Gordon, Ben, Will, and Sally.
0: Before we move on,
2: it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with.
1: Trigger warning. Please note that this episode will discuss suicide and may contain sensitive or triggering content. If you or someone you love has been impacted by suicide, you are not alone. Please use your discretion when listening and connect to supports as needed. For our listeners in Canada, Crisis Services Canada offers a national suicide prevention hotline, which can be reached at one 833 456 4566 or by text at 45645. In our previous episode, we looked at the global impact of suicide, the risk and protective factors involved, and how COVID has impacted suicide and mental health. Today, we're going to talk about suicide prevention models, their strengths and limitations, and some strategies moving forward and how to invest in a more holistic model of prevention as opposed to an individual level.
3: Prevention. Uh, It won't be so doom and gloom as the last one where we talked about (laughs) it. So, looking forward to talk about resiliency and hope building.
1: Mm -hmm. So, according to Living Works, I found the statistics, and I thought it was really interesting. Mm -hmm. It says that we're more likely to come in contact with someone in need of suicide intervention than we are to come in contact with someone in need of CPR. Mm -hmm. So, like, if we just think about that, how often? have you had to do a CPR training course? Like it's, it's mandatory for right. almost all types of service uh, professions. Right. And, you know, CPR is something that you're taught since you're a kid. But with that same energy, do we apply that to suicide prevention? If we are even more likely to come in contact with someone in need of intervention for suicide, what do you guys think? Is prevention something that has as much exposure as it should? Or is suicide even preventable to begin with?
3: Uh, that's a tough one, Linda. Um, that's the, CPR is literally on pretty much every job description uh, because it's so valuable, right? This, this is A lot of times when we compare stuff, it's not to minimize the more common thing. It's just to say, why is the other thing not as highlighted, right? So it's not that we're mm-hmm. minimizing, hey, you shouldn't do CPR as much because suicide intervention may be more of a valuable skill. Um, we're saying that both are very important. Um, So I know from my experience being involved with suicide prevention in the workplace, um, you know, we know that 70% of all um, suicide-related deaths, particularly in Canada, occur in those working age populations. So when we're on the subject of CPR skills at work, uh, we should absolutely be talking about suicide prevention at work. So there is definitely a value there. And in terms of policymakers and decision makers like to look at, you know, cost savings, and we don't really... Um, a human life is priceless, but we'll try to put it in economic terms. In Canada, there's about $6 billion lost um, due to poor mental health and um, suicide loss in the workplace. So there's absolutely a business case for um, organizations and workplaces to implement formal suicide prevention training for their employees, for sure.
4: That being said, though, I wanted, I do want to acknowledge that um, you know, whether it's progress in society or even just in the field of employment or just whatever in general i i do acknowledge that the topic of you know um mental illnesses and you know suicide and just um just talking about that it is definitely improving and i think Mm -hmm. there's more of a of an environment to at least welcome it and i think obviously you know there's a lot more work that needs to be done if we want to reach, um, optimal levels, but I do want to acknowledge that. I think let's even just comparing it to five, 10 years ago, um, talking about mental illnesses, talking about anxiety, stress, and all these psych- um, just psychological aspects of health. I think, um, there's definitely room for that at, in the workplace and at least in my, in my, in my work. Um, so you know, at the, at the federal level, um, we have the employment it's uh, it's called the EAP program yeah where it's um i think employ employment employee assistance program yeah, something like right. along those lines mm-hmm. where it's you know um a service available for any individual who might feel that they need access to the services mm-hmm. and i think um yeah it's it, that's that's definitely some progress that's being made
3: yeah right. that's for for sure because there are even if you think of um just you know when people buy into their employee health benefits, right? A lot of um, you, you know about dental and pharmacy. Um, now, a lot of things are being included for um, counseling services and stuff like that. So um, there is um, there is progress made, but I will caution though those smaller kind of businesses and workplaces um, don't have access a lot of times to those resources. So um, people working in those types of environments um, are less likely to be able to access those supports. So there is some kind of like a gap there between the, the, you know, the bigger organizations and corporations and the smaller businesses that we need to address.
1: And we could talk about this later on, but I guess a more holistic form of prevention would be to advocate for everyone, all businesses to be able to um, afford those types of services for their employees. We could get into it later. I can rant all day, you guys, but um, (laughs) for now, let's bring it back a little bit. Mm. So, the World Health Organization um, came out with a report that said that the majority of suicides are, in fact, preventable. And I guess in the past, there's been this mentality that, you know, suicide is an unfortunate and an ine- inevitable outcome. Mm. And it is unfortunate. It's devastating. It's it's a difficult um, outcome to happen to anybody and, and, you know, people close to them. But the interesting piece is that the majority of suicides are preventable. Mm -hmm. And so if we look at suicide prevention in general, what prevention models look like, I just want to highlight three aspects of prevention in case we may not be familiar with them or if this is a new area um, or if we're just curious. So when we look at prevention for suicide, there's universal, selective, and indicated interventions. Um, So when we talk about universal prevention, these are types of measures that are available to everyone. And so this could be something like a media campaign Mm -hmm. or even things like, you know, Bell Let's Talk on social media Mm -hmm. or um, crisis lines or even things like giving financial benefits in a time of crisis. Like these are universal because they target everybody Mm -hmm. at a more upstream level. Um, Then when we go into more selective measures, those are things like training programs or screening and assessment programs. And they're selective because they're only for a particular subset of the population. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, for indicated, these are for people who are showing warning signs or who are at more of a higher risk. So that could include things like inpatient programs. Mm, Yeah, and overall, they just differ in who is being targeted.
4: And I'm assuming that ideally... When targeting prevention, you would want to tackle all three levels, mm-hmm. right? And um, because, like we like we discussed in our previous episode, the topic of suicide is very um, nuanced and multi-sectoral, multifactorial. Um, it covers all of society; it's a global issue. So I think optimally, it would be it would make sense that you would want to kind of approach and find ways to to tackle this this issue from just different angles so and, and I, I wanted to ask so uh, in the universal category would something like um like world um you know mental health day would that be placed in there or would that fit in
1: well from from my understanding things mm-hmm. like social media campaigns are universal because they mm-hmm. they target everyone and so um something like world suicide prevention day for example mm-hmm. which is september 10th by the way mark mm-hmm. calendars mm-hmm. <laughs> um i think that would be universal
3: yeah universal I don't know, what do you guys think yeah universal because the key thing with the um so universal selective and indicated universal is not um targeting specifically people um who are who are experiencing thoughts of suicide or who have been bereaved or lived have lived experience of suicide It's targeting people who don't have any of those but to raise awareness of the issue so that they can kind of join the cause so That is more of a a blanket approach, Um, Mm -hmm. something like raising awareness for sure. Um, And then you have the selective one where, um, you know, I I referenced the workplace example. Maybe you have health and safety reps, right? Um, So maybe those are some skills that you'd want them to have to be able to intervene if a co-worker is experiencing thoughts of suicide. So you see it as you go down the ladder, it gets more targeted to the intended audience of it
1: Mm. Mm -hmm. but i and my issue though with suicide prevention models firstly we need them and they are great but i think they can be improved in the sense that so far what i've often seen are things like you know telling people to recognize warning signs ask Mm -hmm. people connect them to resources um you know access therapy services take a training course and these are all focused more so on selective and indicated, more individual measures, which mm-hmm. are good and needed, but they're so far downstream.
2: So you're saying, are you saying that we need more universal to hold, to tackle like the whole stigma behind suicide?
1: Absolutely, more upstream. Mm. Like what is the cause of this, the mm. causes of the causes? Why mm. does someone feel that suicide is the only response to a problem, what caused the problem. And so while not eliminating the other measures, I feel that we are lacking in that more upstream intervention. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. That also reminds me of, um, there's a model called um, zero suicide and it's um, a comprehensive approach to suicide prevention to be applied across health systems. So it started in the Henry Ford health system and it was conceived because they were finding that up to 80% of people who later died by suicide um, was attended to by someone in healthcare in the previous year. So there's an indication there that things were missed, like um, we talked about warning signs. Maybe the follow-up, the proper follow-ups weren't in place. So this model was developed to engage in quality improvement in the healthcare system to be able to better support the needs of. People experiencing um, negative mental health outcomes because we know healthcare is more um, acute focused on stuff, right? So, um, the problem with that model though is most people who are experiencing mental health or um, thinking about suicide do not go out and seek help from the healthcare system. So, if we focus only on healthcare system in- interventions, there's a huge bucket of people that we're not able to catch because they don't go that's not the first place to, they go to to get help
4: mm-hmm. yeah that's stuff def- that's definitely prob- problematic because it again it doesn't address what window was saying earlier with you know this tackling the stigma and at the universal level and to be honest i feel that realistically one of the ways to to really respond to the stigma and address it is to n- normalize it talking about mental health and mental illnesses and suicide on a societal level i don't know the specific strategies that that will be required, and if I did, um, no, that would be awesome. <laughs> but I think it's one of those things where, if you know, just if you can get people talking about it, um, and just and making it, you know, something to be that's normal and that's okay to talk about, that's a f- pretty big step forward, I think.
1: So pulling on Will, what you've just said, and Gordon, what you mentioned about not solely focusing on the health system to respond to suicide it sounds to me like we're talking a lot about expanding suicide prevention. So to include other sectors um, to be a a whole of community approach. And so I want to bring in more of a paradigm shift, this Mm. model called the socio ecological model of prevention. This is a foundational concept, I guess, in public health. Um, Mm. And so it's a framework that can be applied to so many different um, public health issues, but Essentially, it describes four layers um, Mm -hmm. of how to think about an issue. Mm -hmm. And in those four layers, you can apply different strategies to respond to it, so different prevention strategies. Mm -hmm. And so the one that I'm looking at or thinking of is from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. And the four levels of it are individual, relationship, community, and societal. And at the individual level that refers to just biological and personal factors that can increase risk. And so on the flip side, prevention would be influencing attitudes, behavior, and beliefs. And I think right. a lot of prevention strategies focus here mm-hmm. at yeah. that individual yeah. level.
3: Relationship slash interpersonal um, looks at how um, people interact with their more in, um, immediate social circles. And um, prevention um, efforts include um galvanizing and looking at these um, immediate social support networks in order to best support um, the person and things like that include um, parenting programs, mentors, or peer, peer supports are a good way as well.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. And with community, it goes towards looking at a person's interaction with like schools, workplace, neighborhoods, or wider social relationships. And what preventable, what prevention looks like in that atmosphere is Modifying your physical or built environment and policies associated with the community?
0: That we have uh, societal, which includes the broad social factors and all the cultural norms we're experiencing. And uh, in this regards, the prevention includes advocating for policies to reduce social inequities. And what makes this model different from all the other models is the community and societal aspects of it. It's We're simply looking at a more upstream level,
4: more broader, more holistic approach when tackling causes suicide prevention. Cause of the causes. Mm-hmm. All this pr- comes yeah. back to that. Just for our listeners at home, uh, we'll be providing some links to the resources if anyone's interested in um, digging, uh, diving a bit deeper into this framework.
1: Mm-hmm. So even going back to those risk factors we talked about last episode, um, things like age or ethnicity and race, you know, some indigenous communities have higher rates of suicide than the general population, mm-hmm. and if we only focus on that individual level of prevention, um, it's not enough. It's not. It's not adequate if we forget or ignore the those societal mm-hmm. and social aspects that influence suicide, like racism, like mm-hmm. trauma, like mm-hmm. oppression. Um, like the effects of having your land colonized you mm-hmm. know um, those are very real and pressing factors that influence suicide and so we need to expand the way we consider suicide prevention
3: right if we if, if we individualize it too much we miss that we miss seeing those trends at the population level and that that might require a kind of a more holistic intervention
1: we end up just kind of pathologizing an individual again right like all the others um social determinants we've talked about it's not in isolation right so
3: right and then yeah. to your point too like when you do see when it emerges that certain populations disproportionately experience suicide um so that's okay that's good to know but then how do we leverage those existing strengths um to build resiliency and coping mm-hmm. skills in that population um in a way that's culturally appropriate to them right so right. um it's not, again, it's not a one-size-fits-all. There are certain best practices that can be mm-hmm. scaled across different settings, but yeah. um, you also have to bring in the community um, to own and to contribute to those interventions that are going to be adopted. Yeah. So. I mm-hmm.
2: think also you have to make the in, the individuals or the organizations that started those racist policies accountable. Yeah. For example, if we have intergenerational trauma with some Indigenous communities due to residential schools or other racist policies, then you know there has to be government acknowledgement to even open up that conversation, yeah, right
1: for healing.
4: Yeah, exactly. And I really like Gordon's point about you know that the that solutions cannot be one size fit all solutions, and um you know bringing in especially in the context of indigenous communities, bringing in traditional knowledge, um traditional expertise and cultural I guess, cultural practices and cultural strategies and just things like that, which. Um, in combination with a lot of these other strategies that we've been talking about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, we've kind of touched on this in terms of what expanding suicide prevention could look like. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any, doesn't anyone have any ideas of what increased efforts at community and societal levels of prevention could look like? I know, Gordon, you had mentioned having. Ooh,
3: call out. <laughs> prevention strategies. I don't know
1: what you're going to say, but I'm right. <laughs> Prevention <laughs> strategies in place in the workplace. So that's a more community level. So occupational prevention strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, does anyone have any other ideas, or would you like to expand on that idea?
3: Well, yeah, I think if you even go up to, I mean, in this context, you know, societal or community-based strategies. Um, that there's a theme throughout this episode that things have to be multi-pronged because there are multiple risk factors that need to be addressed, right? So, um, I wanted to touch on. There are a lot of community-based suicide prevention models being adopted in communities across the world. Um, but in our very own Canada, recently the Mental Health Commission of Canada um, implemented the Roots of Hope um, community-based suicide prevention um, program. And basically this is founded on um, five pillars um, of prevention. So. The first pillar is specialized supports, which deal deals with the prevention and crisis side, uh, and the peer supports that we touched on, uh, as well as workplace interventions, and the training and networks. So, um, healthcare providers are very important in this discussion because they need to provide a safe space for anyone that is going through the healthcare system to ensure that they're not stigmatized and to build that trust to know that. Um, you know, as a patient, your your healthcare provider will have your back for such a stigmatized issue. So um, that's a very important a- aspect of as well. And when you think of even upstream, more universal um, public awareness campaigns are very important to raise awareness of um, issues. And we talked about how suicide is considered a silent issues because a silent issue because of the stigma associated with it. Um, the second, the last. Um, component of the five pillars is mean safety and um, this touches on basically um, ensuring that some of those commonly used um, um, tools that people use to die by suicide whether it's um, you know medications or you know guns or other weapons um, are not easily available Um, so things like um, you know if you have medications in the home, if you're a parent you're on opioids, you know, making sure you have a cabinet that you can lock stuff up. So it's not that this will prevent um, whoever's thinking about suicide completely um, from um, dying by suicide. It just makes it a little bit harder to access those commonly used things that are used to do so. And lastly, um, research, um, setting priorities, um, looking at the situation in communities, understanding that communities are different. Um, and then you have to have an evidence approach, evidence-informed approach, evidence approach to address suicide in specific communities. So um, these are just some key aspects of a societal or community-led suicide prevention model that takes into account um, all the strengths that you can leverage to uh, have a suicide-safer community.
2: That's a great point, Gordon. And I wanted to highlight a case where... We had an intervention that was societal, but then we were able to change it or have a consideration for also a community level intervention. Mm. So there's something in Ontario called the um, Mental Health Act. Mm. So basically, what the Mental Health Act does, it regulate. It's basically it regulates the administration of mental health care. But the main purpose of the law is to regulate the involuntary admission of people into a psychiatric hospital. So let's say if you have suicidal ideations and you go into to see a healthcare provider. The healthcare provider could force you to go to a psychiatric hospital for assessment if they believe that you're a harm to yourself or others. Now, obviously, this could be a very traumatic experience because your rights are being violated. Mm -hmm. um, You're put in isolation. You're not given treatment there, mind you. You're only given the assessment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of stigmatization where an individual doesn't want to go with this option, obviously. Mm -hmm. And they might not reveal their suicidal ideations to the healthcare provider due to this fact. Mm -hmm. So it's it doesn't really help for example right now an amendment to this law to this act was created where a physician who makes the decision to for the assessment could actually do a community treatment order Mm. so what the community treatment order does it goes to that next level of the framework where it's uh, an agreement is brought in by the patient by the physician other healthcare providers such as social health, sorry, social workers, the family as well. And the person isn't put into a psychiatric facility, Mm -hmm. but they're actually living at home Mm -hmm. and they have these resources and facilities brought to that person. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good highlight of how we work within both realms of this framework, aka community and social, Mm -hmm. and how we've also been learning as we go on with these interventions and modifying them to what is more applicable or what is more beneficial. Because oftentimes we try to do good, but the very legislation that we passed might cause more harm.
1: Right. And listening to people say, like, this is harmful. I don't want to be forced to go to a exactly. facility. I want to be I want to have care in my own community. Yeah. Mm.
3: And just to think of just how stigmatizing it would be to be in a psychiatric facility. Um, like how you're you might be worried about your friends or family labeling labeling you with like disparaging terms, right? So you can understand yeah. why, you know, they would the healthcare the healthcare system just needs to be a safer place for people to even express those things in general and another
2: thing of that is that it's going to be on your record for all your medical records in the future mm. like for example if you go in for another unrelated issue and if they and a, a physician sees or a healthcare provider sees your medical record and they see that you were formed mm. that brings its own biases it in within the stigma of healthcare or society in general so now you're being treated differently for something where you try to seek out help right like it's great point it's a downward spiral
1: we talk about stigma so much just in the general society but there's also stigma within the medical field too
0: exactly the place where you think you'd be getting the help from mm-hmm. right so <laughs> yeah we're all part of the same society what can we do
1: <laughs> great point
0: i, I want to bring up uh, a critical point um, about say the socio-ecological model because we when we tackle say a uh, the issue at the community level, and at the societal level. And then it's like, okay, we're trying to prevent uh, the stigma. But do you guys feel like we should go even more upstream than that to eliminate people even thinking about suicide because of all the uh, socio and cultural issues around oh, them absolutely. and problems of equity, problems of racism, problems of all that if... We need um,
1: a radical overhaul of society.
0: <laughs> that's exactly what I'm trying to get at. That. Yep. <laughs> like, I agree with it's you. It's so easy to say, so hard to execute, I guess.
1: Because it's so hard to affect that larger scale social change, we concentrate efforts on the more individual, interpersonal, community level because it's difficult to have that overarching change. Um, but you're right. We do need to think upstream as well.
3: Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to, not to bash on upstream Um, just to play a little bit of devil's advocate. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times, right, you can have, um, you know, policy is considered one of the most upstream actions you can take. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of times the infrastructure doesn't exist to execute the policy effectively, right? So, Mm -hmm. by having, just focusing on policy and missing out, so we have a policy that communities must provide certain things and the communities aren't giving the resources to execute the policy, then the policy falls flat. Which, a lot of times happens for a lot of policies and Ben talked about, you know, yeah. a lot of times we implement a policy and we don't get the intended effect, whether it's no effect or a negative effect. So we all we can't um, get too focused on a rabbit hole of only upstream without missing um, boots on the ground, um, engaging passionate people on issues uh, and, mm-hmm. and things like that. So I just wanted right. to make sure that it's not we, one without the other. For right. Sure. We, we have yeah. to make sure that those are being done at the same time.
1: So in tying all of these points together, we recognize that prevention needs to occur at different levels of society. There needs to be follow through and we need to work on addressing stigma. But I guess what I'm hearing is that we get stuck on how to do this. How can you coordinate you know, a widespread intervention at different levels of society? And so um, I want to bring up a proposed action plan, a proposed method of action um, called the National Suicide Prevention Action Plan. And this is something that the WHO has recommended for every member state to implement. Um, And this is a desirable thing because it's an initiative that is led by government. And because it's led by government, the government Mm -hmm. is able to um, firstly prioritize suicide prevention Mm -hmm. as part of their agenda. Mm -hmm. They can provide that leadership and that guidance. As well as bring together people from multiple sectors, from mm-hmm. healthcare, from education, from um, infrastructure, from different aspects of society. Bring those people together, and then develop a strategy together.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Also, in best case scenarios, you know governments have access to surveillance data. They can provide and disseminate that data. They can provide funding, um, and so. To note that not every government is capable, capable yet of doing this, but I think this could be a method of having a more holistic prevention plan.
4: Yeah, as I think my in, you know, initial reaction to this is, as with all WHO um, you know, global action plans, it's it does seem to be you know very idealistic. For sure, <laughs> um, and. It's, it, it's important when looking at policies that, you know, policy and yes, the political situation of countries go hand in hand, right? That's and, right. you know, WHO can be recommending something for a country, but if that country, whichever government or party or, or what, um, individual in some cases even are, is leading that country. And if this is, isn't part of their agenda, then there isn't much that can be done. So I think. You know, it's 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 one of those things where um, I think just for for the sake of multilateralism, it's it's a good thing, and it's it's good to see that um, you know, the global community and you know, just global public health forum is taking um, suicide prevention and as a very important issue. But it's the the the, the actual level at which it gets um, implemented, it's um, we'll have to see about that one. That very, um, it's a very I guess cynical way of looking at it, but I think it's it's I think it deserves <laughs> you know. Th- this this view for sure,
3: <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily it will because in the same reading, right? Like we talked about how low and middle income countries um, um, have about seventy nine or eighty percent of the the people, the population in the world that died by suicide, um, but yet they are slower to adopt these national suicide prevention measures, right? So the countries that are affected more are the ones that are not even taking or adopting these these um, national suicide prevention measures. So it, there's literally evidence for um, what you said because we need to ensure... And that, that's another thing I was bringing up too. Like When you come up with these... And I know th- their intentions are good, but when you have these blanket kind of recommendations and some countries, like you said, don't have the resources to execute it, it becomes very uh, problematic.
4: And it's not even just the resources. It's that if they don't have... You know, like, the, the political backing right, to do it. Right. And, and priorities and the wills.
1: But this is yes. where that having that awareness, even as a citizen, is important because you can hold your elected officials mm, accountable. It, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, you know, we can knock on low-middle-income countries mm. in, in the sense that this may not be the highest priority because there are other things to deal with, which is true and valid. And But look at Canada. We don't have a National Suicide Prevention Action Plan in Canada. And it's noted by the WHO that Canada doesn't have one. I mean, we Mm -hmm. have a framework, but we haven't moved yet to an action plan. But what is our excuse? And I think that as a country that, you know, we claim to be a leader in so many things, and we are, but we can do better. And so, you know, for us as the public, we can hold our elected officials accountable too.
3: So do we know that if countries with a national suicide prevention action plan are more successful at reducing suicides than countries without Because... If it's just a title, then and there's no kind of positive outcome, measure, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which brings you to Sweden, which you're gonna <laughs> say right now,
1: right? Well, even just to respond to your question, though, like mm. this was only proposed in 2014 for all member mm. states, mm. so there hasn't been like a concrete evaluation of which countries have it, which don't, what are their rates of suicide?
4: Mm. Yeah, and and as I mentioned earlier, it's you know things things like WHO um, you know, action plans that they have. Um, that they agree on oftentimes you know it's it's as much as you know the who attempts to not be a political forum and tries to be a very technical setting you know the the politics that that country is engaging you know just the political diplomatic um, dimensions is deeply rooted in the organization so like you know even even if you have all member states you know hypothetically and i got air quotes here you know agreeing and you know adopting this um it's i feel like oftentimes it's mostly just to, for optics sake and to look like that you don't want to kind of be the that one <laughs> the member the still, one who's left out yeah exactly yeah. right it's like you want to yeah. kind of sign in and like join join the crew join the party but realistically it's it's i don't know
1: but if you know that your country has a, an action plan and you see they're not doing anything about it like it's it's just better than nothing. It's better than just sitting there and saying our country should do something, but we're not doing anything.
4: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's
2: the politics of it, yeah. right?
1: Anyway, um, just as an example, though, um, you may remember from our road traffic episode, we talked about Vision Zero before, in in reference to reducing road traffic injuries. And Sweden was a leader in this area. And when it comes to suicide prevention, they also have Vision Zero for suicide prevention. Mm -hmm. there too um and it is a national prevention policy that was introduced in 2015 so it has been effective but Mm -hmm. financial support has been nowhere near what was given to road traffic safety so um there's that discrepancy there right it could be on the agenda but how Mm -hmm. how much priority how much funding is given to it so i know we we We've spoken a lot about, you know, statistics and numbers and things like that. But often what gets missed when we talk about suicide are that it's actual people, communities and families are impacted. It's, it's, it's you and me and like our neighbors and listeners. And so I thought it'd be nice to kind of just wrap up with sharing um, other experiences with, with suicide prevention, um, either in the workplace or at a personal level, if we would like to share.
4: Yeah. So, um, I, I can definitely start. So just a bit of context. So, um, I, I am East, I'm, a, I'm of East Asian descent. I'm Chinese. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, the issue and just the topic of suicide prevention is it's such a important topic that I find is a very muted and taboo discussion, um, at least in my community and, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's due to cultural, you know, the cultural roots um you know or it's because of other factors i find that um you know especially when when trying to have this this the sort of discussions um with you know let's say for example people in previous generations or you know older individuals who who might not have been exposed to talking about this as freely as we have um it's important to you know for the I, I, here i am going back to the idea of messaging and you know communication again um, is to find ways to integrate um, the cultural aspect in the communication right so if you if you are trying to um, you know talk about suicide prevention you can't be you can't be approaching it only from a you know a north american western lens but finding ways to integrate the it's the traditional knowledge, traditional um, cultural components, as well. You know, it's even just simple things like translating materials so that it is available in other languages. I think would would help a lot of you know newer in, newer immigrants who might be right in that vulnerable population that we discussed earlier about. Um, you know, who might who are at risk of t- attempting to end their life, and um, I, I feel like it's one of those things that's is getting more traction. You know, things like translating um, mm-hmm. important documents, translating information. You know, we've seen it with COVID. We've seen it with other issues. But I wonder if that's being done with suicide prevention. If not, I wonder why not.
1: That's so true. And mm. even I, I, it just made me think how um, some communities may not have a specific word for suicide because you just don't talk about it. And so people might say mm-hmm. things instead like, I feel tired or you know, um, I'm sad or I'm hopeless, but not actually saying the word because it may not be part of common um, conversation. So I like your point there, definitely, to consider cultural aspects.
3: You know, an interesting fact, and maybe we can end on this as an open-ended thing. So when I was doing some reading, the Public Health Agency of Canada said that um, immigrants to Canada were three times less likely to die by suicide in a canadian-born population so that's maybe counterintuitive to what i would have thought when i was reading the stats so mm. there might, it might be interesting to dig a little bit deeper and see why that's the case what are what are those protective factors or how are those risk factors different mm-hmm. um, in, in, in causing these disparities that you didn't expect
1: While suicide is a difficult subject to talk about. We've seen in this episode that investing in suicide prevention can save lives. We've explored the different aspects of prevention and also suggested a shift to a more holistic rather than individual model of prevention. We hope that this episode will be a starting point for more conversation and sustained action towards preventing suicide.
0: Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make Public Health Viral.